0: With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. <laughs> Lembitopic on today's news talk radio, TNT. Welcome back to the Lembitopic show where we
1: dig deep into the subjects that uh, of interest uh, and of controversy uh, around the world and in this hour As I usually do on a Sunday, we explore the continuing controversy of the climate emergency, an emergency which I don't believe exists. We'll be speaking with Duncan White as well, who knows more than most about the subject, uh, to establish what the science really says and to try to get to the bottom of why there is so much emotion on the climate catastrophist side and so little science. Uh, Charnwood Borough Council, you probably haven't heard of it it's in the middle of England. They have declared a climate emergency and they commit, and I quote now from uh, the declaration, the declaration of a climate emergency commits the council to doing all it can to reduce not only emissions related to its operations, but also working with partners, local communities and businesses to encourage them to limit their impact on the environment as well. I agree that we need to be prudent with how we manage the limited resources of the planet. But for Charnwood Borough Council to declare a climate emergency causes me to ask this question. And I would write to Charnwood Borough Council if I lived there. Show me the science. Why do you think there's a climate emergency? They even cited in their debate that there's a monument to a lost glacier in Iceland caused by man made climate change. That's a pretty heady statement. And you would presume it's backed up by science. <laughs> Nothing of the sort. When you actually push these people, usually they talk about consensus. Consensus is not science and science is not consensus. I think it was Einstein, the great physicist himself, who said it only takes one contrary datum to disprove a theory, which until until then had not been challenged by the facts. There's plenty of evidence to show that we're not in a climate emergency. Moreover, there's plenty of evidence to show it's been much warmer in the past than it is today. And yet now we see, local authorities, we see businesses, we see governments hobbling their economies and incarcerating their communities and everything from low traffic neighborhoods to 15 minute cities in the mixed up misbelief that controlling the public is what they're elected to do. I don't think they are. In what should be an age of reason, we should also have the capacity to speak freely about these matters. For sure, if somebody has better data than mine, then I wanna see it. And if it is indeed better, if it shows that the human race is irrevocably damaging the climate, then I will change my view. And I'll say publicly on TNT why I've changed my view. In 44 years of studying the subject, I have seen nothing to suggest that the human race is even capable of making a substantial difference to our climate. Why then are we in such a tizzy about the climate crisis? That's a question I'm gonna ask Duncan White shortly, but I'll give you my preliminary answer before we speak with him. I think there are three motivations. One is vested interest. There's a lot of money to be made uh, in the green agenda. Another is a religious fanaticism. I believe the climate agenda is something that many follow in lieu of a more orthodox religion. And then I think it's used as a control mechanism to establish the Great Reset, as we ominously heard from uh, Mr. Schwab at the uh, World Economic Forum. That Great Reset seems to require us to pay homage to the very people who should be serving us. And that's not the World Economic Forum, much as they'd like to think they're in control but it's the servants of the people, the elected representatives who have a duty not to command, but to follow commands. We live in a topsy-turvy world now where democracy seems to have been subjugated to this kind of fanaticism, a virtue signaling loop between the tiny minority of people who are actively engaged in climate activism and the equally small minority of leaders who seem to be at their beck and call. My message, my advice, my request to the world population is this, go back to the science, look at what it tells us, and recognize that even in the worst case scenario, where the climate were warming in some measurable way as a result of human intervention, we should do what the human race has always done across the last 100,000 years or so, adapt. It is an act of hubristic self-importance for the human race to believe that we can terraform the planet to make the climate stop changing and to fit to our current interpretation of what it should be doing. Much better to live with nature, to ride the wave of change, and to accept that the worst thing we can do is destroy economies which until now have operated on a fairly efficient basis, of practical energy generation and gentle adaptation to our changing world, instead of handing the keys to our world to those countries that neither know nor care why we are trying to cut our carbon dioxide emissions and consequently our standard of living and our ability to stand proud on the world stage. I'd like to know your views on that. Uh, Get in touch, go to the TNT site. I'll read your comments out in the chat. But coming up now, a man who may agree with some of what I say, but also will have a lot more to add in terms of the facts when it comes to climate and change and human intervention. All of that on The Levitopic Show right now on
0: TNT. Russia, gas prices, COVID mandates. It just doesn't seem like anybody's doing anything about it. Today's news talk radio, TNT.
1: Duncan White joins us now. How would you describe yourself in terms of uh, your interest in the climate?
2: Uh, Yeah, uh, good morning. Um, My interest was sparked initially several years ago when I was reading and looking and hearing about the proposal that humanity in its infinite wisdom had managed somehow to alter atmospheric chemistry, had managed to have such an impact through its industrial and social conduct that the climate was changing, the climate was being undermined. And from a rationality point of view, from a logical point of view, you sort of look at this and you think, hang on a minute, is it that simple? Is it that consequential that what we are doing has such manifestly disproportionate impact on the climate? So I started studying And I embedded myself in the study of climate change, atmospheric chemistry, and all the associated issues around that. That then led me on to the political and the social dynamics involved in this. Why has politics and the political system adopted this quite perverse ideology? Because, as I think you said in your intro, it is an ideology. It is a science-free Ideology, And when you attempt to illustrate and educate, dare one say, politicians, be that local councillors, be that national members of parliament, there is a sort of blank expression comes over that, well, you know, the orthodoxy says that we are damaging the, uh, the environment, we're damaging the climate and so on and so forth. The science just does not tell us that. It is very, very simple. You don't have to go very far to look at the reality and when you start looking further and scratching away at it and you realize that various and many organizations have bastardized the data have manipulated deliberately manipulated the data and have come up with a completely false representation of what is happening and the classic example of that you know we we jokingly say man-made climate change but the only man involved is dr man who created the hockey stick uh chart that shows that the climate temperatures are whooshing out of control and that is man-made climate change he made that he synthesized that out of thin air and once you uncover that level of fraudulent scientific conduct it opens the track door and you go in and you start looking at all the others. And Andrew Montfort at the Global Warming Policy Foundation has written a couple of books about uh, um, uh, the, the decline, hiding the decline, and, the, and has uh, captured all the uh, hijacked emails between this Dr Mann and the uh, University of East Anglia Climate Change Department, part of the Meteorological Office. and it, These email exchanges clearly, unequivocally identify that the data has been manipulated, deliberately falsified to create the illusion that we are in this crisis, this meltdown crisis. Um, So you then have to move on from that and start looking at, well, okay, so Parliament and politicians uh, have bought into this fantasy world. And one is reminded of the, the Russian scientist uh, Lysenko, Trofim Lysenko, who invented a completely bizarre bananas uh, representation of science, which convinced Stalin uh, that his view on plant growth and crop growth and all that sort of thing was the way to go forward. And the result was millions of people starved to death because the crop failures. Okay, so, so the government's according so- to this.
1: So just before you go further, Michael Mann, who, in my view, is notorious for the reasons that you say, generated uh, an algorithmic system, which I'm told is so biased in favour of this this hockey stick shape, which shows record climate change in the short term, that whatever data sets you put in, it'll give you the same result. Is that right?
2: Yes. And I can't remember precisely the name of the people involved but someone jokingly said that they managed to get hold of the the algorithms and they fed in the stockholm telephone directory telephone numbers and came up with climate change and you think (laughs) you would wouldn't you (laughs) and the fallaciousness of, of this proposal that has been put forward by uh, as you say, Michael Mann and, and his entourage, his followers, and, and the whole network, an integrated global network of agencies that, that reinf- self, self-reinforce this message is quite extraordinary. Once you've looked into the politics behind it and the, uh, the subversion, if you like, of rationality, because, you know, politicians have bought into this. They haven't got time, they claim, to go out and sit and read endless scientific papers or read the uh, very erudite books that have been written that debunk this proposal. And uh, you and I attended a lecture a year or more ago now with Steve Kopkin, who um, wrote a book and, you know, completely debunked the whole thing. Uh, so politicians don't have time to do this, don't have time to look at the science, don't have time to pour through endless tracts of scientific data. Yet the choice has been, they listen to the idiocracy, they listen to the stupid people that tell them the alternative, that is so easily, so easily and transparently wrong, recognisably wrong, this is a choice they've made. Sorry, I... Well, made John, you.
1: John- Chon Charnwood Borough Council in Leicestershire, which is in the middle of England, has declared a climate emergency. This reminds me somewhat of the nuclear-free zones declared by local authorities in the 1980s, when, of course, local authorities didn't really tend to stockpile nuclear weapons very much. Um, what worries me, the difference is that you can declare yourself to be a nuclear-free borough, and it doesn't really cost anyone anything but yeah. there's a practical implication here. And we'll talk about this later on in the show. It seems to me what makes this so pernicious is that people are being forced to live worse lives as a result of this virtue signaling uh, ideology. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why I'm so concerned about it, Duncan.
2: Yeah. I mean, if, if you, uh... Well, you you rightly say that, you know, when Sheffield County Council and Tiny Town Borough Council said we're nuclear free, well, what do, you You know, I mean, doesn't cost a bean. But when you start looking at national governments, local authorities, regional authorities who declare that not only are they uh, uh, establishing a climate crisis in their locality, but they are also levying costs against the local population, society at large, for doing that. And you, look, you start to look at, firstly, the costs, financial implications of, of this. What does it mean from a monetary point of view? Then you think, well, hang on a minute. That's not the whole story. That's not the only story. There is, If we do establish total net zero, let's say day one, year zero, What's life going to look like? What is society going to be looking like? How are we going to live, function, work, uh, and conduct family life, conduct business, earn money, whatever? And that is truly horrifying when you start looking at those at the projections of what society can be like in a post-next zero world. And
1: what I'd like to do uh, in, in the show today, in the next section, I'd like to face head on some of the claims being made by the climate catastrophists and see how you would respond to it. Then in the third section, that's when I really like to lay out how you imagine the world would be if we Mm. aspire to this net zero ambition. And uh, now I think little Greta Thunberg, the, the doyen of the green catastrophists, she's actually demanded absolute zero. And we need to understand what that means as well. So uh, Duncan, don't go anywhere. Uh, I wonder what you think as well. I'll share your views. Uh, I think Skippy said that uh, Charnwood Council's objective will just lead them to bankruptcy more quickly if they declare a climate emergency. I'll read some more of those messages in a short while. Uh, We're gonna dig deep here. And we're, as always, very happy to hear an alternative view. If you can see a hole in the facts as we present them, then get in touch. I'd love to debate with you. It's difficult to find uh, green catastrophists willing to engage in that debate, but I'm here. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Get involved in the chat, and uh, we'll see what you have to say. Uh, More of Duncan White uh, debunking the climate catastrophists right here on the Lempitopic Show on TNT. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says the youngest people. Um, I work with are a bit more mature but their interactions with the public is stifled and she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also.
3: The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they, could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois, and this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles, is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's (laughs) bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right mind goes to their boss and says, would you mind, I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay because I've got other priorities in a a town (laughs) down the road. Jeremy Nell
0: on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. The benefits of advertising on today's News Talk TNT Radio should be clear to businesses of any shape or size. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anybody and is the perfect way to build brand awareness and stimulate digital activity. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. At the top of the hour, we'll keep on top of the news. It's the most important thing we can do on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back, Let me Dope here
1: for another 40 minutes. The time goes so fast, doesn't it? Uh, with news and comment, I'm here every Saturday and every Sunday, three hours on both. And we always try to have a section about climate change. That's what we're discussing now. An antidote to the nonsense. That's what I'd like to suggest it is. Once again, if you've got better facts than I have, I want to hear them. And I'll modify my view, too. Uh, with me is Duncan White, who has uh, who works for the Alliance of uh, British Divers. He's uh, active in the transport sector and also has spent many years researching uh, the climate crisis that isn't. We'll go back to him in a minute to see what he makes of the main claims which you get from the climate catastrophists. A few comments from the chat. Uh Uh, man-made climate change. I like that, says Blodders. So you've got a fan there, Uh, Duncan. I like it. That's referring to Michael Mann, who's created basically a bogus chart. Uh, Lisa, uh, no, sorry, Skippy says, Michael Mann should have inserted his hockey stick somewhere dark and warm. I understand exactly what you mean there. Uh, Lisa says, wrong mindset and uh oh and no place in britain that's actually about uh, another sub chat which is going on about council cover-ups i won't have time to get into that today uh and Blodders adds mark stein is still fighting against uh, michael mann Uh, i think they're hoping uh uh mark stein snuffs it before it all blows up sadly that's looking likely there is a big debate i'm not sure if you know about this uh Duncan. uh, There's essentially a legal case going on between uh, Stein and Mann. We won't get into that today. It's a bit of a legal quagmire. But uh, Duncan, I wanted to ask you some of the main uh, claims which have been made by the catastrophists. And let's start with this one, that the climate has been warming more quickly than in recorded history since the Industrial Revolution because of man-made CO2. How do you respond to that?
2: Am I allowed to be rude on your program? It's bonkers. No, it's don't happening.
1: swear. Don't swear. It's 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 <laughs> evening in Sydney, but it's morning in Britain, and I don't want to have to apologise to parents. <laughs> but carry on.
2: I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just fallacious. It's bonkers. It, it's meaningless. I mean, if you look at the global temperature over tens of thousands of years, then there the variation is always there it always oscillates a little bit. Now, one of the ways of looking at this is, if you were born in, let's say, April, and you had a life expectancy of six or seven months, and you were born in April, and by November, December, you would have seen a massive change in, in the climate, and you would die in November, December, thinking that the world had come to an end because there was snow and rain and gales and howling winds and all the rest of it. And that is what has happened. People are looking at a minute snapshot of a few, a few decades, a couple of hundred, fifty years, whatever. If you stretch that out and pull the chart out, you can see that the actual oscillation is nothing different, there's nothing new. And yes, okay, since 1850, there's been slight variation upward in global average temperatures, but the, that's nothing unusual, that's nothing different. And if you compare it to the, the Mycenae warm period, the Roman warm period, the medieval warm period, and so on and so forth, you will see that it follows a very, very easy trajectory. It does not vary enormously beyond what we've experienced the whole of humanity's existence. So when people stand up and say there's been this massive, monumental change in in global temperatures, they are only looking at a very small, very selective snapshot. You need to look at the big picture. You need to look overall. That's not to deny pollution. That's not to deny various other bits and pieces. But the essential reality, the essential science, establishes unequivocally. But what we are experiencing is nothing unusual, nothing different, and to be expected. It can be projected.
1: When's the last time sense? it was as? When's the last time it was as warm as it is today? Bearing in mind that all of the headlines I saw at the beginning of January were that 2023 was the warmest year ever.
2: Yeah. I saw, I saw something that said that that we'd have.
1: Oh, uh, uh Duncan. Warmest- uh, so go ahead, Duncan. Sorry, interrupted you.
2: Yeah, I I, I read somewhere fairly recently that uh, someone had conjured up the, the fact that we'd had the warmest period in 125,000 years, and they clearly had ignored the medieval warm period, the Roman warm period, the Mycenaean warm period, whatever, whatever, you know, and and sort of. <laughs> You know, the Egyptian pharaohs were running around in very warm weather, thank you very much, you know. And, and stuff like that is, is nothing short of propagandising a false claim. It is designed to scare. It is designed to make people think we are experiencing grossly disproportionate changes in the weather, changes in the climate. And it's just not factually correct. And you don't need to be a rocket scientist to start looking at the data and start unraveling and unbundling this nonsense. And you well, know, the, the, me... the next,
1: the, the next one, then the next one for you is that we have the most overused word in broadcasting: unprecedented floods, droughts, uh, famines, heat, and blizzards. Yeah. Unprecedented, yeah. all because of man-made climate change. How do you respond to that?
2: Yeah, um, uh, you know this is this is where you start to get uh, uh, labelled as a denier, you know, and, and it's a horrible expression that has, uh, uh, you know, sort of resonates with the, the Holocaust denial and things like that. But nothing could be further from the truth. You only have to look at the record to show. And if you look at the the great flood in East Anglia in 1953, uh, the the great North Sea storm that that wreck, killed thousands in Holland and Flooded East Anglia, that was a that was a, an enormous climatic event, you know. And and the Dutch build dams to with with resist storms like that. Everyone every, every ten thousand years because of that flood. Because of that flood. So the idea that we have unprecedented anything is just not factually correct. And I hate to be you know think that when you be, start looking at the data, looking at the events globally, locally, regionally, whatever, and find out that this unprecedentedness is not factually borne out, you know, you really hesitate because you do become a denier. But because you're denying because the science, because the historical record, because the facts tell you that what this unprecedented thing there is proposed, it's just not there. It's just not there.
1: Uh, then the next uh The next, I'm just going through the ones that I hear the most. The next one is that uh, there must be climate change because either, depending which survey you look at, either 97% of scientists agree that human caused climate change is leading to a crisis or 99% of scientists all agree that human uh, impact is causing a runaway climate emergency. Uh, And therefore you must be wrong because you're in the tiny minority.
2: Well, it's unfortunate that this 97 or 99% is also factually wrong. And again, you do not need to be a rocket scientist to work through the data and look at it. And the way that that 97% of scientists were uh, supposedly in in, in consensus about this is entirely erroneous. If you look at what happened, um, uh, uh, um, a PhD student, trawled through uh, a database of science papers with single word searches and came up with a, a number of papers that mentioned these words no attempt was made to go through those papers and establish whether they actually said yes or no so all that was included was scientific papers that had a few keywords in it actually when you look at the number of papers that were a uncovered in this trawl, less than 3% of the scientific papers there were committed to some form of human input to climate change. So the idea that 97 or 99% of scientists agree with this is completely false. If you then turn to CLINTEL, which is the Climate Intelligence Network based in Holland, there are, when I last looked, a couple of few a couple of weeks ago, there are over 1600 scientists from around the world who have signed up to the Clinton Declaration that there is not a climate emergency. And the Clinton ambassadors have approached the European Union, the United Nations, various other august bodies to present their evidence. And this list of scientists from all over the world have signed to say there is no climate change. Now. That outweighs your 97 or 99% many times over.
1: The other thing a minute. So, so just to intervene, you said that there's no climate change. I believe there's climate change, but I don't believe there's significant human-generated climate change. Is that what, yeah. is that what they're opposing, the, the claim but that what, human what beings are driving climate no change?
2: Emergency. There is no climate emergency. Oh, there is okay. climate change because the climate is always changing. We've said that. I've said that. But it's not changing catastrophically. It's not changing in such a way that is going to threaten humanity or threaten the globe the planet. Um, and they, they had unequivocally stated, unequivocally stated, that there is not a climate emergency in any guise. The other thing that you have to always bear in mind is that consensus is politics. Consensus isn't science. And you said in the introduction that it only takes one adverse finding to overtip a current scientific orthodoxy. And, you know, someone tomorrow could come out and say, well, Newton got it wrong with a falling apple. Gravity is factually not scientifically supported because I have discovered X, Y and Z. Well, until someone does discover X, Y and Z, we'll go on thinking gravity is a factual situation. Gravity exists in some, whatever it is. So, you know, the idea of consensus is, is totally erroneous. And when you hear people saying things like, you know, uh, there is a consensus, you know, John Kerry says there's a consensus, you know, Soros says there's a consensus. You know, they're lying. It's as simple as that.
1: (laughs) Then, okay. then you touched on this before, but let's tackle this head on so that in the next part of the show, we can envisage what the world would look like if we aim for net zero or betide us absolute zero if we can even define what that means but uh, the next one is that most governments in the world have committed to some kind of uh, mitigating uh, action to reduce the carbon dioxide footprint of the human race and they wouldn't do that unless there was a serious threat which is why seventy thousand people flew to uh, dubai to tell us not to fly (laughs) so why is there so much political momentum behind a fictitious climate emergency agenda
2: i mean i always tell anybody who is brave enough to listen to me that the one key message you must take away is follow the money always follow the money and if you look at government policies if you look at industrial policy and so on and so forth the the financial commitment to this is extraordinary and the payoff is government subsidies it is as simple as that it is in government's interest to rake in as much cash as they can from the citizens from the electorate from every source they can get to fund these these changes the industrial payoff is is enormous and if you look at uh, a map of all the interrelated uh, corporate events, political, uh, corporate issues, uh, political uh, policies, and they all link together in a monstrous network. And this has been drawn up. This has been mapped out. Uh, I'll send you a copy, Um, you know, of of who is profiting from this, who is getting uh, rewards from this. And you look at people like Bill Gates. Why is he buying up every available... Available bit of agricultural land in the United States. He's not doing it out of altruism. You know, rescuing the poor, starving farmers from penury. He's doing it because he has a global strategy of corralling and capitalising on as much agricultural uh, trade th- that he can. And, and you know that that approach is reflected elsewhere. So it's always follow the money, and governments are bought into it. And I have to say. In their ignorance, they bought into it. But a large part of governments are bought into it deliberately, not out of ignorance. They know what is going on. We know they know what's going on. And, and, you know, you start to sound like a denier and a conspiracy theorist and all this, you know. But it's not hard to uncover. It really isn't hard to uncover. So always follow the money.
1: So you'd say it's an economically-based agenda, but then uh, the the final part of my exploration in this section of the program why would someone like greta thurnberg the little girl from sweden be doing it she didn't strike me as being a uh, corporate uh, doyen she struck you're me wrong. as sincerely believing the world was ending go ahead you're going to say yeah i mean
2: so there are so many issues to this and you know I'm, i need to cover them all off so bear with me Firstly, uh, Greta Thunberg is autistic. And that, that's unfortunate it, it, in many ways, it's unfortunate, but she is autistic. And she has, she's on record as saying she can see, taste and smell CO2 in the atmosphere. That is that is, you know, at that point you start to think, hang on a minute, we're in we're in the world of psychological delusions and so forth here. Secondly, she's not um, a lost little girl who believes, etc., etc. Her parents are Marxists and are fully signed up Marxists uh, who uh, have expressed in many occasions their wish to overthrow Western imperial capitalism and all the rest of it. But Greta Thunberg is underwritten by some of the biggest corporates in, in Sweden, insurance companies. Uh, life assurance companies, I've written a paper about this, you can have a copy, exposing all the financial links and all the people at the top of those financial institutions who are on the board that uh, governs her activity, that controls her activity. It is not some poor, lost, frightened, young college student, schoolgirl. girl, who has suddenly woken up to the fact that we are all being poisoned by this evil, brute CO2. It is a long, deliberate, political, economic, financial enterprise from top to bottom. You can have a copy of my paper if you want.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd love to see that, actually. Uh, Those are the main areas which I have thrown at me. uh, And by and large, uh, the most... Intense activists tend to return to the consensus argument. They often resort to personal attack. And of course that uh, great new tool cancellation when you're prevented from debating in the first place, yes. which I presume is because they don't have a proper response. Just out of interest, uh, before we go to the break, have you experienced that kind of resistance from people pointing and say, you should be canceled. You are a climate denier. You're going to steal the birthright of our children's children. Have you experienced that?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Directly, personally. I was at a group meeting uh, this time last year. Yeah, about this time last year, where at one point I thought one of the women in the uh, group was going to hit me. Um, And uh, they were vociferous. They were hissing and spitting and frothing. Um, And when I I tried to rationalise some of the issues that they were worried about, they knew nothing. It was absolutely manifestly obvious within seconds that they actually knew nothing. They didn't even know how much CO2 was in the atmosphere. They didn't know how much rainforest was being sacrificed to this global conspiracy to wipe out and devastate the ecology. They had no idea. They had got hooked on this religious sort of venture about climate change, the new god of climate change, the new god of ecology. They knew nothing. And uh, as I say, I thought one of the women in the audience was going to hit me. It was uh, an interesting well, typological experience.
1: <laughs> well, stay with us, because in the next part of the show here on TNT, I want to explore the world according to net zero, and if we have time, absolute zero, if we can determine what that means. So if they have their way if the climate catastrophists succeed in causing us to stop generating human uh, generated carbon dioxide, what would that world look like? We'll come back to that in just a moment, right here on TNT.
2: While serving in Vietnam, a grenade took my ability to see. Today, I'm a sculptor creating new visions. Now, my fingers are my eyes. As a veteran, I know the challenges of life can be great. In my art, turning a lump of clay into something beautiful, that means a lot to me. Life is like that. We each must use what we can to make things better.
0: DAV helps veterans like Michael get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways.
2: Now, I show others how they can create something with their own hands. With support from DAV, More veterans can shape their lives into a thing of beauty. My victory is bringing beauty into the world.
0: Michael Naranjo, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Most people are unaware that bad bacteria can grow quickly in food that's stored, prepped, or cooked incorrectly, and that can lead to food poisoning. To avoid bad bacteria, always make sure your hands and cooking utensils are clean. Keep raw meat and chicken away from food that won't be cooked. Run your fridge at or below 5 degrees Celsius and use a meat thermometer to ensure your meat's being cooked to at least 75 degrees Celsius. For more tips on keeping bad bacteria at bay, visit foodsafety.asn.au. Lembit OPIC on today's News Talk, TNT
1: Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to the last 15 minutes of my show. Where did those other two and three quarter hours go? Uh, still with me uh, is Duncan White, who is uh, an activist for the Alliance of British Drivers and also something on Expert about climatology. Uh, a few comments coming in. I like this one, Lisa. Lisa says, Lembit is a bit posh, LOL. Uh I suppose I am really. <laughs> Thanks very much. I think I'll take that as a compliment rather than anything else. Uh, Skippy says Michael Mann, that's the uh, person who claims that we've got runaway climate warming already because of humans. Michael Mann has been litigious in the past. Seems like this latest effort uh, is to make deniers persona non grata. Yes, Gibby. I think that uh, from what we've heard from Duncan and my own experience, that is exactly what they want to do. Uh, they they play the person rather than the subject. And uh, uh, there's many more there. Just go and have a look at it. You can see a lot of claims. One more Justin bloke says, regarding the claim that 97% of scientists agree, if you censor everyone, that disagrees, very good point. If you choose the people who agree with you, they're gonna agree with you. That's a good point, Duncan, I think that just a bloke says. Uh, essentially, it's what you said, selective data uh, harvesting. Sorry? It's selective data harvesting, isn't it, oh, yeah. uh, Duncan?
2: Sorry, on the transmission, yeah. Yes, it is absolutely selective. And, and uh, uh, one part of Michael Mann's um, uh, exploration of climate change was dependent on a single tree, and the northern hills of California, uh, uh, redwood or something like that. Um, one single tree was the source data, and you just you just think, well, it's just so preposterous. It's not. It's beyond comment. You know, it's just nonsense. So yeah,
1: I've looked at some of it myself, and when you start reading the actual proper science from people like Ian Plymer in Australia and elsewhere, (laughs) all of whom suffer cancellation issues. It's quite clear that in as much as science is ever settled, it is settled on the basis that human beings will be making some kind of a difference to the climate, but it's barely measurable, as far as I can see, above the background noise of natural variation. But let's now assume that the catastrophists continue to drive at least Western political thinking. I don't think they're very effective in the BRICS countries. I don't see India, China, Russia jumping to it, which is probably why uh, oil um, usage was at a record level in the history of the planet last year. But let's assume that we continue down this path. What would life look like in the United Kingdom or Australia or America if we live in a net zero world? First of all, what does net zero mean?
2: Well, net zero means that, the, that, that humanity, in its broadest sense, does not emit any uh, carbon dioxide. Um, so even if you take um, a subsistence farming or, a, you know, a medieval uh, village farming where they have log fires and go out and hunt the deer and all the rest of it, they are emitting CO2. So, you know, that, that's sort of off the book. So I it, think... It, 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 Total net zero, absolute net zero were to be achieved, which of course is scientifically impossible, but that's that's another discussion. You're faced with three three stages of, of post-net zero social development. Firstly, you you would have the most the least damaging would be a 15-minute community, where everything and this is what Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, and other mayors in the United Kingdom and other organizations around the world are promoting. Like you have everything within a 15-minute radius of where you live—your doctors, your cinemas, and everything else. You know, forget the fact that you would need CO2 to make films, but whatever. So you'd have a very close community, and that would go back to medieval village-type life, where you would have uh, a sealed-off locality with everything within 15 minutes uh, walking space. You wouldn't be able to drive anywhere. That would be the the least damaging in terms of social well-being, society's existence and continuation. But the reality would be that there would be, have to be extensive austerity and rationing. Um, the, government, the UK government sponsored a Cambridge University report called FIRES, Fires, um, where it said that shipping, commercial aircraft, commercial aviation, all must stop. Uh, because the pollution from those is such. So imports and exports would have to be cancelled. We would have to be virtually self-reliant. And that would be impossible for the United Kingdom because the British landmass can only support a population of 30, 32 million, something like that. We currently have 70 million. So austerity, rationing, food rationing, uh, water rationing, travel rationing, all would be absolutely required there, there would be no choice. It would be an absolute requirement. And then I suppose the third sort of stage would be penury, absolute penury. Uh, we would have to go back to a situation where there is large-scale want. There would be malnutrition. There would be food poverty, heat poverty. Uh, money would be very subjective. The, other, the methods of transaction would be bartering, in all probability. Uh, freedom to move, freedom to go anywhere would be absolutely limited. So you, you you return into uh, an era era of subsistence food production that would be the norm. Uh, it would be a wartime gardening situation. You know, during the Second World War, we all everybody was you know use your gardens, grow beans and potatoes in your gardens. It would be as, as as difficult as that. And I think this is where my sort of political mind starts to kick in because I can't find a single MP or councillor who has paid recognition to that level of disruption to society as a well. whole? There is this panglossian view that once net zero is implemented, total net zero, whatever, is implemented, MPs think that society will carry on in a much quieter, much more contained, much more controlled sort of way. No, it won't. I've not been able to find a politician, local, national or whatever that understands the level of penury, disruption, and regression that is an absolute corollary of going into net zero. We would be back to medieval standards of living.
1: what What you're describing there is the diametric opposite of what the Green Movement and politicians in all parties who support this climate crisis agenda are telling us. They describe a There's clean all... utopia, which, well, they describe a green utopia where there are no um, bad emissions, where people live in peace with nature, where you don't get pores of smoke hanging over cities because our energy is clean, where you have silent electric cars. Totally the opposite but... of what you've described. I, you know, I, I know you are
2: telling us what the politicians are saying, it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. How do you make bricks to make homes? How do you heat? Where do you get electricity from? You know, where do you build schools, hospitals? How do you equip hospitals? How do you provide employment? How do you provide manufacturing facilities? Where do you? How are you going to make toilet paper? You know things like that. You know this, this is not carbon neutral. You cannot do this without emitting carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is not poison. It's not a pollutant. It's, you know, it's it's marginal. And they, they just don't seem to get how we could have a society, a modern society that has all the accoutrements of, of modern living associated with it. I mean, televisions, radios, this this iPad that we're on, you know, none of it would exist. You cannot manufacture this stuff without emitting carbon
1: manufacturing industry would come to a standstill uh just uh, let me just read hemingway's left put a note in which i just want to read to you from the tnt chat it's quite long it's quite relevant the international renewable energy agency calculates that solar energy goals for 2050 to meet the paris accord will result in old panel disposal constituting more than double the tonnage of all today's global plastic waste to accommodate 2,000 megawatts of gas or nuclear power generation requires the same area as two 18-hole golf courses. But accommodating 2,000 megawatts of wind power requires an area the size of Belgium. It does seem to me <laughs> that uh, a green world would actually not be very green because it would be solar panel coloured. <laughs>
2: I mean, to pick up on that comment, did you say Hemingway? Hemingway, a- yes. Yeah, Pick up what I've previously said and pick up on, on that point that the, the correspondent mentioned. The, the, the only alternative is totally renewable energy, and that is uh, hydroelectric like Norway does. Um, we can't do that in the UK. It would mean nuclear. Now, if we are going to totally nuclear, Now, that is viable, that is possible. Now, if we were to carry on and and have a society that is recognisable by today's standards, but is totally electrified, electrification, we would need nuclear power stations. Now, I'm not an electric nuclear physicist, I don't think remotely like it, or an engineer, but on the back of an envelope working out, we would need to be building a nuclear power station every nine months for the next 35 years to provide that level of electricity that runs current society. That's to say, you know, we, we have a car or access to vehicles, we have buses, cinemas, transport, manufacturing, all that sort of stuff would require that volume of electricity, that we would need to go totally nuclear, totally nuclear. Now, you know, the current build rate of nuclear power stations in the United Kingdom is 17 years. We need to be building one every nine months. And it's just not viable. It's just not going to happen in the United Kingdom. And politicians cannot get their heads around this. They are so emotionally locked into this perverse philosophy of some grandiose scheme of total net zero. They don't realise what they're getting themselves into.
1: And uh, so just finishing off, there's a lot more comment, I haven't got time to read them all. But please do go to the TNT chat to see uh, what people are saying a lot of sympathy for what you're saying, Duncan. So just let's indulge ourselves on this juicy new idea in the world of global boiling, as the Chief of the United (laughs) Nations calls it. We all have also have the idea from little Greta Thunberg of absolute zero, that we produce not net zero carbon dioxide, but none at all. What's that world look like, Duncan?
2: Uh, Well, firstly, it's never going to happen. I mean, secondly, and I'm going to be a little bit facetious here, if you go down to Brighton Beach, you can watch uh, Punch and Judy. Far more sensible than what these people are saying. (laughs) Far more sensible. It is nonsense. Um, And to suggest that the world is boiling is just so ridiculous. It's just... I mean, you know, what can you say? It's just, it's just parody. It's beyond parody. Uh, they they do seem
1: to get away with it. When Gutierrez, I think it was Anthony uh, uh, Anthony Gutierrez, who said this. When he mm. said global boiling, first I wondered if he was being metaphorical, and I still can't make it out. The only global no. boiling that occurred was when Hunga Tonga uh, erupted underwater and spat millions of gallons of water into the high atmosphere apparently increasing uh, air, air temperatures temporarily by just under one degree celsius yeah why do they say these things and why don't they get hauled up for making idiotic statements
2: yeah i mean it, it's scaremongering it is deliberately targeting the population at large with scare stories to frighten people into compliance and and one of the issues that I'm studying at the present moment is is a topic called institutional agnotology, which is the structural manufacturing of false belief. So governments all over the world, we all know about nudge politics and psyops and all these sort of things that governments have entered into, particularly over the COVID uh, lockdowns and, and that period. But there is a far greater enterprise underway, which is the deliberate manufacturing of ignorance in the public, storytelling, and reinforcing that storytelling by a, an array of organisations, you get the police saying, "You know, global warming." You get councils declaring there a global warming crisis. There, governments inventing net zero policies. It's all part of that manufactured, deliberate policy of instilling ignorance in the public to an end. To a, to a very great end, it is a means to an end. And then, you know, when when the the rhetoric starts to slip and people like the German farmers and the Dutch farmers driving tractors up and down the autobahns and whatever, once the rhetoric starts to slip and people start to see through it, you have to get the big captains of world authority like Gutierrez and others from the United Nations, World Health Organisation, standing up and saying disaster, catastrophe, alarm, horror stories, to reinforce this this narrative, this, this bizarre narrative. People are seeing through it. The Dutch farmers, the German farmers, the British farmers are on the verge of rising up against it.
1: Thank Um, you you so much. Hmm? We're gonna have to leave it there. Uh, Duncan, it's always a pleasure to speak with you uh, because you bring not just common sense, but readily available facts in order to uh, make your case. That's Duncan White. We'll certainly have him back again. I wonder what you think. Uh, The chat will continue. Thanks so much to Duncan and my other guests today. Thanks to my team. More than anything, thanks to you for having the good sense to listen, to make your own opinions. I'll be back next Saturday for another three hours of news and comment when we dig deep into the affairs of the state. Have a fantastic week. Stay with TNT. My name's Lembotopic. This is The Lembotopic Show right here on TNT. See you soon.